Section 37 of The Valley of the Moon by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 3, Chapter 3, Part 1. It is forty miles from Oakland to San Jose, and Saxon and Billy accomplished it in three easy days. No more obliging and angrily garrulous linemen were encountered, and few were the opportunities for conversation with chance wayfarers. Numbers of tramps, carrying rolls of blankets, were met, traveling both north and south on the county road, and from talks with them Saxon quickly learned that they knew little or nothing about farming. They were mostly old men, feeble or besotted, and all they knew was work, where jobs might be good, where jobs had been good, but the places they mentioned were always a long way off. One thing she did glean from them, and that was that the district she and Billy were passing through was small farmer country, in which labor was rarely hired, and that when it was, it generally was Portuguese. The farmers themselves were unfriendly. They drove by Billy and Saxon often with empty wagons, but never invited them to ride. When chance offered, and Saxon did ask questions, they looked her over curiously or suspiciously and gave ambiguous and facetious answers. They ain't Americans, damn em, Billy fretted. Why, in the old days everybody was friendly to everybody. But Saxon remembered her last talk with her brother. It's the spirit of the times, Billy. The spirit has changed. Besides, these people are too near. Wait till we get farther away from the cities. Then we'll find them more friendly. A measly lot these ones are, he sneered. Maybe they've a right to be, she laughed. For all you know, more than one of the scabs you slugged were sons of theirs. If I could only hope so, Billy said fervently, but I don't care if I own ten thousand acres. Any man hiking with his blankets might be just as good a man as me, and maybe better, for all I'd know. I'd give him the benefit of the doubt, anyway. Billy asked for work at first indiscriminately, later only at the larger farms. The unvarying reply was that there was no work. A few said there would be plowing after the first rains, here and there, in a small way. Dry plowing was going on, but in the main the farmers were waiting. But do you know how to plow? Saxon asked Billy. No, but I guess it ain't much of a trick to turn. Besides next man I see plowing, I'm going to get a lesson from. In the mid-afternoon of the second day, his opportunity came. He climbed on top of the fence of a small field and watched an old man plow round and round it. Aw, oh, shucks, just as easy as easy, Billy commented scornfully. If an old codger like that can handle one plow, I can handle two. Go on and try it, Saxon urged. What's the good? Cold feet, she jeered, but with a smiling face. All you have to do is ask him. All he can do is say no. And what if he does? You face the Chicago Terror twenty rounds without flinching. Ah, oh, but it's different, he demurred, then dropped to the ground inside the fence. Two to one, the old geezer turns me down. No, he won't. Just tell him you want to learn and ask him if he'll let you drive around a few times. 
Tell him it won't cost him anything. Uh, if he gets chesty, I'll take his blame plow away from him. From the top of the fence, but too far away to hear, Saxon watched the colloquy. After several minutes, the lines were transferred to Billy's neck, the handles to his hands. Then the team started, and the old man, delivering a rapid fire of instructions, walked alongside Billy. When a few turns had been made, the farmer crossed the plowed strip to Saxon and joined her on the rail. He's plowed before a little mite, ain't he? Saxon shook her head. Never in his life, but he knows how to drive horses. He showed he wasn't all greenhorn, and he learns pretty quick. Here the farmer chuckled and cut himself a chew from a plug of tobacco. I reckon he won't tire me out sitting here. The unplowed area grew smaller and smaller, but Billy invinced no intention of quitting, and his audience on the fence was deep in conversation. Saxon's questions flew fast and furious, and she was not long in concluding that the old man bore a striking resemblance to the description the lineman had given of his father. Billy persisted till the field was finished, and the old man invited him and Saxon to stop for the night. There was a disused outbuilding where they would find a small cook-stove, he said, and also he would give them fresh milk. Further, if Saxon wanted to test her desire for farming, she could try her hand on the cow. The milking lesson did not prove as successful as Billy's plowing, but when he had mocked her sufficiently, Saxon challenged him to try, and he failed as grievously as she. Saxon had eyes and questions for everything, and it did not take her long to realize that she was looking upon the other side of the farming shield. Farm and farmer were old-fashioned. There was no intensive cultivation. There was too much land, too little farmed. Everything was slipshod. Houses and barn and outbuildings were fast falling into ruin. The front yard was weed-grown. There was no vegetable garden. The small orchard was old, sickly, and neglected. The trees were twisted, spindling, and overgrown with gray moss. The sons and daughters were away in the cities, Saxon found out. One daughter had married a doctor. The other was a teacher in the state normal school. One son was a locomotive engineer, and the second was an architect, and the third was a police court reporter in San Francisco. On occasion, the father said, they helped out the old folks. "'What do you think?' Saxon asked Billy, as he smoked his after-supper cigarette. His shoulders went up in a comprehensive shrug. "'Ah, that's easy. The old geezer's like his orchard, covered with moss. It's plain as the nose on your face, after San Leandro, that he don't know the first thing. And them horses. It'd be a charity to him, and a saving of money for him, to take him out and shoot em both. You bet you don't see the Portuguese with horses like them, and it ain't a case of being proud or putting on side to have good horses. It's brass tacks and business. It pays. That's the game. Old horses eat more than young ones to keep in condition, and they can't do the same amount of work. But you bet it costs just as much to shoe em, and his is scrub on top of it. Every minute he has them horses, he's losing money. Not to see the way they work and figure horses in the city. 
They slept soundly, and, after an early breakfast, prepared to start. I'd like to give you a couple days of work, the old man regretted at parting, but I can't see it. The ranch just about keeps me and the old woman, now that the children are gone, and then it doesn't always. Seems times have been bad for a long spell now. Ain't never been the same since Grover Cleveland. Early in the afternoon on the outskirts of San Jose, Saxon called a halt. I'm going right in there and talk, she declared, unless they set the dogs on me. That's the prettiest place yet, isn't it? Billy, who was always visioning hills and spacious ranges for his horses, mumbled unenthusiastic assent. And the vegetables, look at em, and the flowers growing along the borders. That beats tomato plants in wrapping paper. Don't see the sense of it, Billy objected. Where's the money that come in from flowers that take up the ground that good vegetables might be growing on? And that's what I'm going to find out. She pointed to a woman, stooped to the ground and working with a trowel in front of the tiny bungalow. I don't know what she's like, but at the worst she can only be mean. See, she's looking at us now. Drop your load alongside of mine and come on in. Billy slung the blankets from his shoulder to the ground, but elected to wait. As Saxon went up the narrow, flower-bordered walk, she noted two men at work among the vegetables. One an old Chinese, the other old, and of some dark-eyed foreign breed. Here was neatness, efficiency, and intensive cultivation with a vengeance. Even her untrained eye could see that. The woman stood up and turned from her flowers, and Saxon saw that she was middle-aged, slender, and simply but nicely dressed. She wore glasses, and Saxon's reading of her face was that it was kind but nervous-looking. "'I don't want anything today,' she said, before Saxon could speak, administering the rebuff with a pleasant smile. Saxon groaned inwardly over the black-covered telescope basket. Evidently the woman had seen her put it down. We're not peddling, she exclaimed quickly. Oh, I'm sorry for the mistake. This time the woman's smile was even pleasanter, and she waited for Saxon to state her errand. Nothing loath, Saxon took it at a plunge. We're looking for land. We want to be farmers, you know. And before we get the land, we want to find out what kind of land we want. And seeing your pretty place has just filled me up with questions, you see. We don't know anything about farming. We lived in the city all our life, and now we're giving it up and going to live in the country and be happy. She paused. The woman's face seemed to grow quizzical, though the pleasantness did not abate. But how do you know you will be happy in the country, she asked. I don't know. All I do know is that poor people can't be happy in the city where they have labor troubles all the time. If they can't be happy in the country, then there's no happiness anywhere, and that doesn't seem fair, does it? It is sound reasoning, my dear, as far as it goes, but you must remember that there are many poor people in the country and many unhappy people. You look neither poor nor unhappy, Saxon challenged. You are a dear. Saxon saw the pleased flush in the other woman's face, which lingered as she went on. But still I may be peculiarly qualified to live and succeed in the country, 
as you say yourself, you've spent your life in the city. You don't know the first thing about the country. It might even break your heart. Saxon's mind went back to the terrible months in the Pine Street Cottage. I already know that the city will break my heart. Maybe the country will, too. But just the same, it's my only chance, don't you see? It's that or nothing. Besides, our folks before us were all of the country. It seems the more natural way. And better, here I am, which proves that way down inside. I must want the country, must, as you call it, be peculiarly qualified for the country, or else I wouldn't be here. The other nodded approval and looked at her with growing interest. The young man, she began, is my husband. He was a teamster until the big strike came. My name is Roberts, Saxon Roberts, and my husband is William Roberts. And I am Mrs. Mortimer, the other said, with a bow of acknowledgment. I am a widow. And now, if you will ask your husband in, I shall try to answer some of your many questions. Tell him to put the bundles inside the gate. And now, what are all the questions you are filled with? Oh, all kinds. How does it pay? How did you manage it all? How much did the land cost? Did you build that beautiful house? How much do you pay the men? How did you learn all the different kinds of things, and which grew best, and which paid best? What is the best way to sell them? How do you sell them? Saxon paused and laughed. Oh, I haven't begun yet. Why do you have flowers on the borders everywhere? I looked over the Portuguese farms around San Leandro, but they never mix flowers and vegetables. Mrs. Mortimer held up her hand. Let me answer the last first. It is the key to almost everything. But Billy arrived, and the explanation was deferred until after his introduction. The flowers caught your eyes, didn't they, my dear? Mrs. Mortimer resumed and brought you in through my gate and right up to me. And that's the very reason they were planted with the vegetables, to catch eyes. You can't imagine how many eyes they have caught, nor how many owners of eyes they have lured inside my gate. This is a good road, and it is a very popular short country drive for town folk. Oh, no, I've never had any luck with automobiles. They can't see anything for the dust. But I began when nearly everybody still used carriages. The townswomen would drive by, my flowers and then my place would catch their eyes. They would tell their drivers to stop, and well, somehow, I managed to be in front within speaking distance. Usually I succeeded in inviting them in to see my flowers and vegetables, of course. Everything was sweet, clean, pretty. It all appealed, and... Mrs. Mortimer shrugged her shoulders. It is well known that the stomach sees through the eyes. The thought of vegetables growing among flowers pleased their fancy. They wanted my vegetables, they must have them, and they did, at double the market price, which they were only too glad to pay. You see, I became the fashion, or a fad in a small way. Nobody lost. The vegetables were certainly good, as good as any on the market, and often fresher. And besides, my customers killed two birds with one stone, for they were pleased with themselves for philanthropic reasons. Not only did they obtain the finest and freshest possible vegetables, but at the same time they were happy with the knowledge that they were helping a deserving widow woman, 
Yes, and it gave a certain tone to their establishments to be able to say they bought Mrs. Mortimer's vegetables. But that's too big a side to go into. In short, my little place became a showplace. Anywhere to go for a drive, or anything, you know, when time has to be killed. And it became noised about who I was, and who my husband had been, what I had been. Some of the town's ladies I had known personally in the old days. They actually worked for my success, and then, too, I used to serve tea. My patrons became my guests for the time being. I still serve it when they drive out to show me off to their friends. You see, the flowers are one of the ways I succeeded. Saxon was glowing with appreciation, but Mrs. Mortimer, glancing at Billy, noted not entire approval. His blue eyes were clouded. Well, out with it, she encouraged. What are you thinking? To Saxon's surprise, he answered directly, and to her double surprise, his criticism was of a nature which had never entered her head. It's just a trick, Billy expounded. That's what I was getting at. But a paying trick, Mrs. Mortimer interrupted, her eyes dancing and vivacious behind the glasses. Yes and no, Billy said stubbornly, speaking in a slow, deliberate fashion. If every farmer was to mix flowers and vegetables, then every farmer would get double the market price, and there wouldn't be any double market price. Everything would be as it was before. You are opposing a theory to a fact, Mrs. Mortimer stated. The fact is that all the farmers do not do it. The fact is that I do receive double the price. You can't get away from that. Billy was unconvinced, though unable to reply. Just the same, he muttered, with a slow shake of the head. I don't get the hang of it. There's something wrong so far as we're concerned. My wife and me, I mean. Maybe I'll get a hold of it after a while. And in the meantime, we'll look around, Mrs. Mortimer invited. I want to show you everything and tell you how I made it go. Afterward, we'll sit down and I'll tell you about the beginning. You see, she bent her gaze on Saxon. I want you thoroughly to understand that you can succeed in the country if you go about it right. I didn't know a thing about it when I began, and I didn't have a fine big man like yours. I was all alone. But I'll tell you about that. For the next hour, among vegetables, berry bushes, and fruit trees, Saxon stored her brain with a huge mass of information to be digested at her leisure. Billy, too, was interested, but he left the talking to Saxon, himself rarely asking a question. At the rear of the bungalow, where everything was as clean and orderly as the front, they were shown through the chicken yard. Here, in different runs, were kept several hundred small and snow-white hens. "'White leghorn,' said Mrs. Mortimer. "'You have no idea what they netted me this year.' I never keep a hen a moment past the prime of her laying, period. Just what I was telling you, Saxon, about horses, Billy broke in. And by the simplest method of hatching them at the right time, which not one farmer in ten thousand ever dreams of doing, I have them laying in the winter, when most hens stop laying and when eggs are highest. Another thing, I have my special customers. They pay me ten cents a dozen more than the market price, because my specialty 
is one day eggs. Here she chanced to glance at Billy and guessed that he was still wrestling with his problem. Same old thing, she queried. He nodded, same old thing. If every farmer delivered day-old eggs, there wouldn't be no ten cent higher than the top price. They'd be no better off than they was before. But the eggs would be one-day eggs. All the eggs would be one-day eggs. You mustn't forget that, Mrs. Mortimer pointed out. But that don't butter no toast for my wife and me, he objected, and that's what I've been trying to get the hang of, and now I got it. You talk about theory and fact. Ten cents higher than top price is a theory to Saxon and me. The fact is, we ain't got no eggs, no chicken, and no land for chickens to run and lay eggs on. Their hostess nodded sympathetically. And there's something else about this outfit of yours that I don't get the hang of, he pursued. I just can't put my finger on it, but it's there, all right. They were shown over the cattery, the piggery, the milkers, and the kennelry, as Mrs. Mortimer called her livestock departments. None was large. All were money-makers, she assured them, and rattled off her profits gibbly. She took their breath away by the prices given and received for pedigreed Persians, pedigreed Ohio, improved Chesters, pedigreed Scotch Collies, and pedigreed Jerseys. For the milk of the last, she also had a special private market, receiving five cents more a quart than was fetched by the best dairy milk. Billy was quick to point out the difference between the look of her orchard and the look of the orchards they had inspected the previous afternoon, and Mrs. Mortimer showed him scores of other differences, many of which he was compelled to accept on faith. Then she told them of another industry, her homemade jams and jellies, always contracted for in advance, and at prices dizzyingly above the regular market. They sat in comfortable rattan chairs on the veranda while she told the story of how she had drummed up the jam and jelly trade, dealing only with the one best restaurant and one best club in San Jose. To the proprietor and the steward, she had gone with her samples. In long discussions, beaten down their opposition, overcome their reluctance, and persuaded the proprietor in particular to make a special of her wares, to boom them quietly with his patrons, and above all, to charge stiffly for dishes and courses in which they appeared. Throughout the recital, Billy's eyes were moody with dissatisfaction. Mrs. Mortimer saw and waited. And now begin at the beginning, Saxon begged. But Mrs. Mortimer refused, unless they agreed to stop for supper. Saxon frowned Billy's reluctance away and accepted for both of them. End of section 37